Welcome to the Minnesotan Podcast. This afternoon, we're going to talk to Rob Lear. Rob has a great history in hockey and hockey broadcasting and everything in between. We're going to talk to him about him growing up in southwest Minneapolis, playing for Coach Dave Peterson, getting involved in the broadcasting industry, and all the different people he met over his years in the broadcasting industry and what he's doing today. Today's sponsor is the Minnesotan. Nothing compares to the Minnesotan. If you're looking for some great vintage hats this year, year for Christmas. They have St. Paul Vulcans, St. Paul Saints, Ham's Beer, Vintage St. Thomas and St. John stuff. It's a great, great store. If you want to take a look at their store up in White Bear Lake, great. If not, put a dent in your Christmas list this weekend and take home a free hat by spending $100 or more now through Small Business Saturday in-store or online at theminnesotan.com. Online code not required. Looking forward to a great show with Rob. Love is a burning thing And it makes a fiery ring Bound by wild desire I fell into a ring of fire Well, good afternoon, Rob. How are you doing today? Tony, great. Thanks for having me. Well, this is a, a, a great, be a fun podcast. We're both Minneapolis Southwest graduates, and we have a, a lot of lineage together that you know that we didn't realize we had. And uh, we'll talk a little bit about uh, being Indians. Uh, we put with air quotes on it, and uh, everything else in between. You have a pretty fabulous broadcasting career. I can't wait to hear, hear more about your current uh, position in in the public relations on the other side of the media. Oh, it's been a, it's been a great ride. And, you know, it's one of my hockey's always been one of my passions. And to, uh, to think that, uh, through most of my life, I've had some kind of a connection to hockey, whether it's as a, uh, a former player, whether it's as a former journalist that covered a lot of hockey, um, or now, uh, someone that's in the public relations uh, media, uh, industry that I uh, do a lot of projects and promotions on behalf of a lot of hockey groups. So, um, hockey has been a theme uh, throughout my life, and it, uh, it makes me very happy. You just can't shake it, can you? I mean, you, you really can't. Once you get in, you're, you can't get out. Well, and it, it's all about the people. Uh, right. That's, I mean, in a good way. Uh, in, in a good way, because, uh, you know, I'm, I miss now as, you know, my parents or my, my, my kids are all playing senior hockey other places, but I, I miss those days as a hockey parent to come and go from the rinks and to see all the same familiar faces coming and going, you know, week after week. Yeah. Um, I mean, that was just, uh, those are some of my, my, my most uh, cherished memories was just uh, walking into a rink and looking at the, not just the pictures on the wall that would stir so many fond memories of those, those programs, but the, you know, the people responsible for those successes uh, and then for them to get to be friends or colleagues or acquaintances uh, that's the best of hockey is that we're, we're kind of all in it together and it's a community within itself. So let's go back to, you know, everyone gets dragged to a rink eventually in their life as a hockey player. How did you get dragged down to Pershing park? <laughs> well, I got, uh, Pershing park wasn't, uh, far from where I grew up in South Minneapolis. Um, uh, and you might remember great warming house. Oh yeah. Huge. It was like, it was like a, yeah, it was a huge uh, facility. 
and so there was, you know, I mean, to be able to come in from the cold and uh, have a place to spread out and, and you'd bring your lunch and, and spend all day. Uh, and the ice was always good. Um, you know, it was kind of my entree into hockey was uh, the, the hockey program at, uh, at Pershing Park. And we, had, we played outdoors and you shoveled the ice before you could use it. And it just was a way of life. And, uh, you know, Southwest, had, as you know, you know, the, the, the large Catholic families, the Lundines, the Bonins, uh, uh, you know, the names go on and on about uh, that we would surround ourselves and, and play uh, play hockey growing up. Um, it, it just it got to be uh, it got to be just exhilarating. Yeah, I was a I was a West kid, and we we when I got indoctrinated over to, to Southwest, it was like I had died and gone to heaven. I came from a big family of brothers, and when I get over there and I meet the Warehams and the Walkers and and the Bonins and the Lundeens. It was just like it was like I died and gone to heaven. It was a heavenly area to live in. Yeah, what I mean, South Minneapolis, and, and I think to this day that's part of the the charm is the you, you know your neighbors and you trust your neighbors and. Uh, uh, just, just a great, great neighborhood. And, um, you know, a lot of those family names are still around and, uh, you know, that, that speaks to the legacy and to just, uh, the way of life. So you're in about sixth or seventh grade and Southwest is playing, makes it all the way to the, the state final over at the Met center. Walk through where you were and how, how exhilarated you were through that whole process of the winning a state title. Well, we were fortunate enough. We, uh, I grew up on Queen Avenue in Minneapolis, 51st and Queen, and directly across the street, one of the large, uh, notorious hockey families in South Minneapolis were the Shellstead. <laughs> one of the best goalies of all time. Well, and Brad, uh, and, and, you know, before, before him is his brother, Dick Shellstead, that was, uh, uh, you know, quite a player. Jeff Shellstead was, I mean, the Shellsteads. I mean, they had the outdoor rink in their backyard, right? right? And they had the lights and, you know, um, the dad, um, uh, Mr. Shellstead, he was a police officer with the Minneapolis Police Department. And um, and he was just a, a, a soul-to-the-earth guy who put up the rink, and that's where kids in our neighborhood would spend a lot of time playing outdoors. And so my recollection of that 1969 state tournament game against Edina 1970 was that Brad Shelstead was the starting goalie and that the game was against our arch rivals from Edina and I didn't quite understand the magnitude of the rivalry uh, but uh, I have because that game to this day is polarized as you know one of the great backyard uh, rivalries and state championship games and the uh, un, uh, underdog Southwest, uh, uh, you know, wins the game one nothing. But you may or may not remember, but I remember because it was my connection to that game that Brad Shelstead was left off the All State team. <laughs> he just he pitched a shutout, and it was because you know in those days they voted for the All State team a week before, before. The championship. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Well, well, not literally a week before, but but before anyway you know, the merits of the state title game were played. And he was clearly the biggest reason that Southwest won that game. Um, but, 
you know, to this day, it's always haunted everybody from Southwest that how could you leave, you know, how could you put the losing goalie that gave up a goal on the deflection? Um, how could he make the All-State team? And then and Brad Shelston went on to be a college All-American in Minnesota. How could he be left off? And, and, and Brad turned out just fine, but uh, it just adds to the rivalry. Yeah, I can tell you at least a dozen different people that I've known who've met Brad all come back and say he was one of the most down-to-earth, humble, nicest guys you'll ever meet. No ego whatsoever. Well, and, and he had kind of a there's, a, there's a calming presence to being around Brad. Yet to be the athlete that he, that he was and to be at that high level, you knew that he had to have a fire burning in his belly. Right. That you just, you never really, I mean, he was like the ultimate competitor, but he didn't wear that on his sleeve and he wasn't throwing his gold stick over the boards. I mean, he was just solid. I mean, he was just, you know, he was a rock back there. And, you know, he was, uh, you know, does anybody play stand up style goaltending anymore? No. I mean, you know, I mean, he was just, he was old school and played the angles, you know, was a big present in the net, which, uh, you know, is kind of the, you know, that's the prototypical goalie these days to be over six, two or bigger or yes. bigger. And, um, but no, he was, uh, he certainly to this day is a symbol of, uh, of, of excellence when it comes to Southwest. And, um, the only regret is that, uh, one of my brothers who, uh, they had their recently their I think was it their fiftieth high school reunion. They went to uh, as alumnus. They went up to Southwest High School, and they went into the gymnasium and they list all of the state title years and the achievements. And nowhere in the public display of that achievement of a Minneapolis high school hockey team winning a state title in the most precious of all arenas the state high school hockey tournament, they don't reference them as the Southwest Indians. They reference them as the Southwest Lakers. No. That state <laughs> title. And the alumni there were just dumbfounded to say, well, wait a minute, that was our senior year, and we weren't the Lakers. I understand you're the Lakers today, but you can't have a selective memory. Right. And the recognition of that achievement is really, you're, you're, you're not paying the tribute to them that you that they deserve. Yeah. And uh, the athletic director today at Southwest High School is Robert Holloway. Uh, he's a Edina, Edina guy. He played, uh, he played high school hockey with one of my sons. Really? Um, what a small world. Yes, and, yeah, and he has... He has taken it on um, as one of his uh, missions that he's going. He said that he was going to fix that. Really? That, uh, that he that he recognized a the politics of it, but b yeah to the alum the alum that came in there and were kind of taken off guard to say, wait a minute, you know that might be the greatest hockey achievement that this school ever achieves in its history. Yeah. Let's not tarnish it. Maybe athletic achievement. Maybe athletic achievement that the school has, right? When you think about it. Yeah. Well, you, you might, you know, the cross-country teams, you know. Oh, uh, Hoisington. Remember? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Bob Hoisington, the coach. <laughs> I mean, 
Uh, I mean, they were the standard. I mean, their long distance running program year after year, they were, you know, that was excellent. And uh, so that, that, that they, they may argue with you that, you know, they won one hockey, but we won 25 cross country state titles. Yeah. Do you remember John Wooden won all those state titles and they made rules about, you know, the way he recruited, they made state high school league rules about the way Bob Hoisington ran his cross country program. That's what I've been told. He was a hard driver. What's that? Well, and, and what a great neighborhood to, to run. Oh right? yeah. I mean, unbelievable. Went right, went right out the back door and looped Lake Harriet Lake in those days, Lake Calhoun. Yeah. And, uh, just, just a great, a great environment to train every day. So let's talk. You, I want to talk about your uh, tenure at Southwest, and you were a goaltender, and you got to play for one of the best coaches and goaltender coaches in the state's history, Dave Peterson. Walk through some of your memories of him at Southwest or your memories of playing goalie at Southwest. I got several. I mean, I was very fond of Dave, uh, you know, just an iconic figure, um, uh, I, I mean, you may or may not remember, but, you know, some of the greatest, you know, he was ahead of himself in that he was um, uh, a mastermind of putting together hockey schools. And yeah. I just, I remember as, as 10, 11, 12, I mean, Braemar Arena used to have hockey schools. And if you go back and look, it was like Jeff Sauer, you know, uh, Dave Peterson, um, the, the cream of the crumb of, of high school coaches were the coaches that you'd go to these camps and, 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 uh, and work with for a week. Yep. And then he, then he went out, then he had the same camps out in Colorado, out in Colorado Springs. He was doing with, uh, with Bob Johnson and things, and he was doing all this innovative stuff. So I really got to know Dave, you know, as, as a young hockey player, as the, the high school coach, he would be able to interact with, the up and coming players through these camps. Right. And then eventually, you know, uh, uh, coming up through the ranks then, and then coming to Southwest high school, I tell the story that, you know, he was a typing teacher. I don't even know if that's a thing anymore. <laughs> if, if, if educators are, you know, I know that he was my typing type. teacher. I can tell you that he was my typing teacher for sure at Southwest. Oh, okay. So, He's my typing teacher. I'm a, I'm a junior in high school. He's my type, typing teacher. And I'm on the high school, I'm on the high school hockey program as a JV, as an 11th grader, varsity as a senior. And I had nine o'clock was my first hour typing class. And all winter I'd get excused. I'd come in at nine o'clock, sit down, the bell would ring. He'd say, okay, I would get excused from my typing class to go down and flood yes. the outdoor practice <sighs> rink, okay, down by the football field, right? The field house. The field house, okay? Yes. So I thought that was the greatest break in the world until I went to college to become a journalist. And, you know, typing was a little important <laughs> for that profession. I love and it. And so I'd work in newsrooms and people would say, geez, you're – it looks like you can only type about 70 words a minute. I said, well, that, yeah, maybe 70 words a minute. I said, I didn't get to be very proficient at typing because I was flooding the rink for her high school hockey practice after school. And so I, 
later on, I, I, I teased Dave about that. He said, well, you can only, you can always find time to learn how to type. You oh. can't always pick. He says, we wanted the best ice. And if you flooded at 9 a.m. by, by noon, it had set up and it was crystal clear for our after, after school practices, which is true. Yeah, the the memories. Uh, I, I'm not sure if you had as good of memories. That field house. If the if the if the uh, if the walls could talk, uh, some of the oh greatest my. memories of mine were just hanging out. It was like a little lair, a, a little man cave uh, that we could just go and hang out and skate and play and hang out, and, and no one would bother us at the at the field house. Well, and you and my greatest memory is just the hockey sticks hanging from the ceiling that were the rats to hang up your sweaty equipment. Yep. Remember? Yes. The, the, yes. the old hockey stick hanging down and then you, you know, you got done skating and you just you, you threw your, your gear over so that it would dry overnight. I mean, talk about a Petri dish for COVID. <laughs> I mean, that the whole place I mean, was a Petri dish of bad, but we all yeah, seemed to, there was, well, there was, we had some great antibodies. Was, was, that's for a, sure. Yeah, yeah. I mean, there was there was no ventilation in that place. No. It was a warm brick building. It was a warming house, right? Yeah, it was and, great though. Uh, yeah, yeah. Well, it, it brought the team together, right? I mean, it certainly did. It brought everybody together. And it was you didn't have a choice. It was weird, just you know, coming from West, we didn't have that, and then I, you know, Washburn didn't have that. Roosevelt didn't have that. None of those schools had the field house with their own rink and their own boards, their own flooding system. Why did Southwest get that? How did who pulled that off? I'd always like to know that. Well, you know, I think. One one of the one of the uh, uh, the geniuses of Dave Peterson was again his network. If you looked at the people that Dave hung with, you know that, that were his peers and mentors. I mean, these were all people that had it figured out that hey, you want to be able. It, it's it's one thing in those days they were building rinks, but there weren't many of them. Right. But if you've got your own rink and you've maintained your own rink, and then you know one of the great. The hires he ever made was to have Larry Larson as the JV coach. Duckers. Who? <laughs> I, I, yeah, I mean, we call them Duckers. I don't know what you call them in the seventies, but we call them Duckers. But but here's the guy that talk about someone that would roll up his sleeves and get the work done. Oh, right? I mean, unbelievable. Shoveling the ice, you know, maintaining that. I mean, and how much the the, the pro, he was one of the the, the backbones of the program oh. without a guy to be able to do the heavy lifting so that the team could practice and do all the other things that were going to happen. You know, uh, what a great hire. And it, and I don't know how many years Larry Larson was the assistant hockey coach at Southwest, but it, I bet it was 20 years. Oh, it, more than that. It was um, unbelievable. The neat part about Mr. Larson, here's a great Mr. Larson story. You know how you have a, a, a line chart at the end of the year with the, the stats, you know, games played, goals, assists, penalty minutes. One of the line items was number of floods, and that's how he sorted the stats. So you didn't, it wasn't sorted by most <laughs> points. It was but the guy who had the most floods on the team. I'll never forget that. And that's what his whole focus was making sure that they had a piece of glass of ice at two thirty when we stepped on that ice. And he used the boys like like you said with Mr. Peterson. We we made that piece of ice unbelievable. And whether or not this was by design, it was the design, you'll remember there there was no there was no uh uh glass, there was no screen, 
It was only the boards, which were a little higher than Correct. normal boards. But I think the mindset was that it got people that were shooting pucks to keep the puck on the net. Yes. Right? Yep. I mean, because yes. otherwise you spent half the day retrieving Chasing. the puck over the boards. Yes. Yeah, it was a different time, that's for sure. But that was uh, some of my great. Memories. I'm glad we got to share this part of it because I didn't think I didn't. I wasn't sure if Mr. Larson was was there back in the '70s, but he was a oh, definite, yeah. oh, unique yeah. part of our success. That's for sure. So after high school, um, you we talked before we went on the air. You talked about I knew what I wanted to do. Um, you said that to me before we started the show. Tell me about what you wanted to do and how you got into it at UND. Well, I knew that, you know, I, I was a big hockey fan. I, I, and you know, I was, I had a passion that I really wanted to go into broadcast journalism. And so I, I arrived on campus at the university of North Dakota because I knew that they had a college broadcasting program that was very, uh, student friendly. Um, I mean, I went to, I went to school there and I, I was doing university of North Dakota hockey games, play by play my freshman year. Um, and it was, I mean, the line wasn't that long. I was going to say, how I, do you stumble I, across that? I mean, it, it was it because they weren't very strong at the time. There wasn't a huge amount of interest. How did you get that gig right out of the gate and how did you do it, get it without any experience? Well, I mean, think about, I mean, any student that was coming, you know, I would say 70% of the students that go to the university of North Dakota are from North Dakota. And there were, you know, there there were very few high school hockey programs in North Dakota at that time. And so there weren't people that had those kinds of similar interests that I did that, you know, I had, I couldn't call my first college football game until, you know, uh, my third year of school. Got it. So there, there was no knowledge base is what you're saying about the game yeah yeah so it was like well who wants to do this okay if you're available you you do the hockey game okay and so i did and and so i not only in those days i mean everything has changed so with 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 television but believe it or not in those days the the university of north dakota's college television station would send a photographer and a play-by-play guy on the road with the hockey team you would tape the games and they would come back. And on Monday and Tuesday night, you, they would play them back on the college TV station. <laughs> so it was tape delay coverage yes. of college hockey. And so for the, uh, my, my freshman and sophomore year, I traveled to all the WCHA games that North Dakota played for two years. I rode the team team airplanes i rode the team buses i mean i was essentially you know the media traveling party for the university of north dakota and so i just i had a ball i mean you know it was just one camera just kind of like a ushl game today just you and one camera you would you would call the game into into audio and bring the thing back in a can and put it on tv monday and tuesday night yeah they, they they would play it back and they, they really got uh, up there, got phenomenal uh, ratings. And uh, I mean, that, so that's how, okay, when Dave Christian was, was, a, uh, was a freshman at North Dakota, that's how his dad, Billy, was wa- watching the games, right? They yeah. didn't travel in those days to every game, 
but they can watch them on the TV replay. Yeah. And, and so they're, but of course that's all evolved that everything is, you know, on, on digital streaming and yeah, over the air. And, and, and But, but uh, no, that's how I, I knew I wanted to be into broadcasting. I knew I wanted to do some hockey and I was given that opportunity at the university of North Dakota. And then I took a news writing course my sophomore year to, uh, to be a, a better writer and to they call it broadcast journalism. And I'm taking that class. It was being taught by the local news anchor of the 10 o'clock news anchor of the NBC station in Grand Forks it was WDAZ channel eight. And I'm in this class with 11 other students and he comes into the class one day and he says, Hey, he said, is anybody pursuing a career in sports casting? Because my 10 o'clock sportscaster just quit. No He was doing way. sales and sports. And in those days, small stations would do that. Okay, you can sell during the day and go on the air and read the scores at night. And after class, I went up and I said, well, I said, uh, Chuck, I said, I'm, that's what I wanted to do. I said, I, I wanted, you know, I, I wanted to be a sports broadcaster. He says, okay, well, great. He says, we're. Our station is owned by Forum Communications down in Fargo. He says, our decision makers are in Fargo. I'll give you, uh, you know, I'll give them a call. We'll set up an audition and you can, you know, if you can get down to Fargo, um, they'll put you in the studio and we'll see if you've got what it takes and they'll put you on the air. I said, okay. So this all happened within a week or so. And I didn't have a car at North Dakota. I got a buddy of mine who, uh, let me use his car. Drove what, down what year to, in school were you? Were you second year, third uh, sophomore. year? Sophomore. Wow. Yep, second, se- yep. sophomore. <laughs> and anyway, I went in, did, did the audition, walked out. The guy says, you're hired. I said, oh, okay, that's great. So um, went back and, and we figured it out that, you know, I was going to be a student during the day. Okay, I wasn't doing their sales, but I could be a student during the day and then don't take any classes after three o'clock in the afternoon. I could come in and do the newscast. Was it six o'clock and, so and ten o'clock got, or just ten o'clock? It's you know, six and ten. Okay. I did the news I did the six and the ten. And I did that for a, over a year. And at that time, North Dakota's college hockey program was kind of in a, a state of flux because they had rapidly dropped off the map. They, they weren't very good. Right. Uh, Rube Yorkman was the coach and there was a lot of uh, uh, mistrust in, in his style. And they openly wanted to go out and find a new hockey coach. And I was, I reported on the steps of the search process to get a new hockey coach at North Dakota. And I followed it all the way and I, I had the three finalists. It was Marshall Johnston, who at the time was at Denver University, yep. very, su- you know, very f- successful former pro player. Yeah. Okay. Um, then who's the guy that um, um, uh, I want to say Colgate, but he was uh, uh, no uh, Ted uh, Ark Harkness. Ned Harkness. Okay. Ned Harkness was uh, an East Coast guy. Um, had a, had a really, had a, had a, uh, 
a very uh, no-nonsense reputation in hockey. Uh, he was considered the leading candidate. And then for the third candidate, everybody thought they just threw his name in the head as a courtesy, was Gino Gasparini. Where was Gino from? Where, what was where, Before he got there, where, what was his background? Well, he, he had been with Rube for like 12 years. Oh, really? He, he was a longtime assistant at North Dakota. And so, therefore, nobody really kind of, nobody thought he had the profile. Nobody thought he had any head coaching experience, which he didn't, that he would be, you know, strongly considered for that job. And so, as the process uh, played out, and I'm reporting on every step, Ned Harkness comes in, he interviews, and on his way to the airport, they had put together this package. I mean, they thought he was going to take the job. On the way to the airport, he said, <laughs> by the way, he said, on top of everything else, I've got two, you know, I've got two kids that are going to be in college soon. I want you to waive their tuition so they can come to school here. Well, the Board of Regents thought that he was, that, that they was trying to pick their pockets. And they said, no, we're not going to let you add free tuition to what we think is a very generous offer. So he withdraws immediately. And I was the first to report that he's out of the picture. Marshall Johnson had, he was at Denver. Denver stepped up and offered him more money. So he now decides he's going to stay. So that left one guy standing, which was Gino Gasparini. So I get the, I report that, you know, Looks like Gino's going to get the job, this unheralded longtime assistant. Right. Well, Billy Christian, after I get off the air on my 6 o'clock sportscast, Billy Christian calls and says, Rob, okay, David is, you know, supposed to come to school there next year. He's being heavily recruited, you know, come to North Dakota where I played, all the whole thing. Yep. He says, he, David is not going to come to school there and play for a guy with no credentials like Gino Gasparini. If Gino's the coach, David's not coming. I said, okay, can I use that? He says, yes, you can use that. Wow. This is scoops. I I love it. Yeah, so I'm on TV talking about, you know, we're down to one candidate and the most heralded recruit they've got. His family's not happy. And, of course, the university. They don't want any of this out there to be reported. No. These are internal. Okay. A, you know, the region said, no, we're not going to let you put tuition, free tuition. B, Denver stepped up and offered a little bit more money, and North Dakota didn't want to match it. C, leaves them no choices other than the current assistant, and now we've got a top recruit that thinks that's a bad choice. All bad publicity. It's like a mushroom cloud, isn't it? It is. Can I ask you, can I stop you really quick? So at some point you're employee of the universities because you're doing their broadcast or, or did you stop doing that and you're a full employee at Forum? No, I, I'm a full employee. I'm doing the, the 6 and 10 o'clock news at the NBC affiliate. And nothing, okay? at, you're not doing the UND games anymore. Oh, I'm not doing the North Dakota okay. games anymore. Because like, talk no. about a conflict of interest, right? Yeah, yeah, had, no, had you been. But but keep it, keep it, keep in mind, the players that I was riding the bus with, they're still, you know, you know, I mean, they're still on the team. Yeah. The trainers, 
and as you know, I mean, trainers are your best friends when you're a media guy. Yep. Okay. Those, those guys are still living in the dorms. So I, I mean, I, I never had so many contacts and sources that I knew exactly what the reaction was to all this stuff. And so we get to the news conference. Um, they announce it's Gino. And at the same time, the athletic director of North Dakota, after the news conference comes over and says, Hey, you know, you get, in addition to getting press passes, I got two tickets to every North Dakota game. Okay. Two get tickets to the hockey game, two tickets to basketball, football, the whole thing, right? That, that's just what they always did for the local sportscaster. Yep. yep. And I got a, I got media parking, you know, so I can lug the gear in, right? right? So you park up close, close to the door. The athletic director looks at me and says, you have done nothing but caused all this uh, bad publicity for the school. And I said, well, was I inaccurate? No, that's not, the, that's beside the point. We're going to pull your parking pass and we're pulling away all your free tickets. You're not going to get any of that anymore from us. I said, okay. So I went on the air that night reporting that Gino took the job. And oh, by the way, and I held up my parking pass and all the tickets and said, the university said, I can't park up next to the building and I can't use these tickets anymore. So I threw them up in the air and then they went to commercial. <laughs> the phone lines start blinking. Okay. Well, the next day, the athletic director has a meeting with the general manager of the TV station. And I get called into a meeting and he says, you know, none of what you reported was not true, but that's not how we do business up here. We need to get along with everybody. Therefore, we're going to terminate your position and you're not going to be our sportscaster anymore. I said, okay, well, wait a minute. Let me get this straight. I'm here going to school to be a journalist, and I'm being told that reported first, reported accurately, and you will be rewarded as a journalist. You're telling me I got it all right, but now I've lost my job. That's correct. You've lost your job. Okay. So that was my entree into the world of broadcast journalism, and it took me four months, but after a search, I ended up in my hometown of Minneapolis and through my Southwest connections, uh, the Blake family was a big, oh, man. Uh, Joe big Blake. family in Edina. Yeah. The big family in, in, in Minneapolis, Joey Blake, Jeff Blake. I play with Jeff. What was Mr. Their what dad, was her dad's name? I know he worked at KSTP. What was his Jim. name? Jim Blake. Yeah. yeah. Jim yes. Blake. Great Jim guy. Blake, really good guy. And he's the, he's the national sales manager at KSTP. He had heard about all of my episodes through, you know, family and friends. So he says, I want to introduce you to Stanley Hubbard. You should be working for, you know, you're breaking stories and then getting fired for telling the truth. You should be working at a higher level anyway. Yeah. So I end up going into Hubbard Broadcasting. I meet Stanley Hubbard and I'm in his office. He's got my audition tape. And through some awkward connections with the equipment, instead of pushing play, he pushed fast forward on the video tape and it stopped 
during my play-by-play coverage of a North Dakota-Minnesota Golden Gopher hockey game, which got Stan to say, oh, you do hockey play-by-play. And him being a former player, you you, you had him right there, didn't you? We we made a connection. We we had a passion for hockey. And long story short, during that meeting, I get hired by KSTP to become a sports reporter in their sports department. And that was my connection to broadcast journalism and the next step. And, you know, came to work for a station that had the hockey rights to do the state high school hockey tournament. And, you know, that was just a great, great uh, run of uh, being able to be doing stories on the high school programs. And, you know, I'm three, I'm three and four years removed, right? I mean, I, I know all the players. I know all the coaches. I, um, I know all the history. And it was just a, it was a phenomenal experience. And then with them doing the state hockey tournament to be able to do that for three years, those are just some very fond memories. Well, let's get to that because when ABC slash KSTP had the rights to this state tournament, you guys made this into something that we, as a consumer, was some of the best TV you could ever see. Um, I, I, I can't go. I can't even describe it to some people how great you guys made this. First of all, you you broadcasted more games, correct? It was like. 10 plus games of the state tournament, right? Right. And we went at the biggest, the biggest deal, Tony was that KSTP made the commitment. We went from three cameras to 13. So the enhancement of camera angles, uh, from overhead camera shots, the cameras on the benches to access to players and do interviews between periods. Um, I mean, there was just, it became a major production. What the hockey at tournament the, at the time got covered. At the time, how many cameras were were, were at a at a North Stars game? You think? Oh, maybe in pro six, yeah, seven, yeah. This, so this was this was double NHL coverage. Yeah, and and we had an engineer, Marv Mitchell, Marv Mitchell, and uh, who was the other? Um, just a brilliant guy who put together all the communication packages, all the different camera angles. And, uh, it just, it, it reinvented what the high school hockey tournament was. And because they were celebrating ABC, the switch from the NBC affiliate to ABC as part of their changeover, uh, Stanley Hubbard had made a deal with the network if they could parade in their stars, it was unbelievable. We would, it, we would promote it during our hockey tournament coverage. And so, I mean, the love boat was a big deal back then. <laughs> Cheryl, Cheryl Teagues. I mean, Tom Richard Hanks. Dawson, Tom Hanks. Tom Hanks. I mean, uh, and then of course, you know, Howard Cosell, the one and only. And, so what did Howard uh, do so, in the broad? Was he more of a celebrity, or did he actually do interviews of players? He did both. He did both. They 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 brought Howard over to the tournament, and he wasn't going to do much, okay? But they brought him up to the broadcast booth, and he kind of he really got into it, right? And a he you know he was taken back by the the crowd, 
the bands, you know, all that, all that makes the high school hockey tournament great. So they're interviewing him. You know, they get with he's up in the booth with Al Shaver and Herb Brooks, and they're up there, you know, doing all that. And then at the end of the game, they had brought him down, you know, and you might remember in those days, there was no elevator to the old St. Paul Civic Center no. press box. You had to walk through the crowd, you know, to get up there. So they get, they, they, they allowed plenty of time with his entourage to get Howard down. And they, and he was really going to go back to the hotel. He had done his thing and he was, he was going to be out of there. Well, he said, it was Howard's suggestion. Well, don't you want me to be around, uh, be around for the post post game interviews? They said, well, that would be great. So he went on to the interview set. Okay. He went onto the interview set. Edina wins the game. Here comes Willard Eichela, and I've seen the, the the tape many times. He interviews Willard Eichela. Yeah. He says, he says Willard Eichela, University of Michigan, All American, nineteen whatever, whatever fifty one or whatever. Yeah. But yeah, yeah. And he just kicks into this thing, and it was like. You know, he had been watching Edina and Willard's teams play for years. He's just a broadcast professional. And can, so people that are younger than 40 that might be listening to the show, can you explain to me the magnitude of who Howard Cosell was to us at that, at that in, in the early 1980s? Well, uh, Howard Cosell would, would be a cross between Captain Kangaroo and the Fox. Okay, he would be all things to every. Everybody knew him. Okay, and it was either just Howard or it was Cosell. Everybody knew who he was, and he had a he had a such. What separated Howard was his unorthodox style. He wasn't just another former jock. He wasn't just another broadcaster. He had a very intellectual approach and an orthodox style that made him charming. Yes. And he didn't have a lot of empathy. Uh, I mean, if you ever saw any of his interviews with Muhammad Ali, right? I mean, he, he, he you know, James Muhammad, you, you know, you, you took a lot of uppercuts. You know, you weren't, I mean, he could dissect any situation ask the hard question and really prompt a great response from whoever he was talking to. Yeah. He had, he had that gift. He had that gift. There's, there's never been anyone like him ever since. And the, the it, people have tried, but you just cannot duplicate what he was to sports broadcasting. In today's world, he might come off as being too quirky, right? I mean, yeah. Now we're getting sports 24-7. You might look at a guy like that and you wouldn't give him a chance. But to understand Howard Cosell's gift was to know how smart and how much homework he had done, whether it was boxing, whether it was whatever it was. Any okay, sport. Monday night football stuff. Anything. Cliff diving. Remember they did, he was doing cliff diving? I mean, like, oh, yeah. he did everything. And. I don't think his TV career started before he was like 70 years old. And that was the other thing. You know, he wasn't some college punk that showed up. No. And, and everybody thought he was great. 
you know, he, he came along at a time where he had paid his dues and, you know, made a lasting impression. Yeah, there's the, the, like I, I use an example of today's. There's a NFL guy. He he was on Monday Night for a year or two named Booger McFarland. Great, kind of quirky, funny, very opinionated. But I don't think I don't think the general public wants to pay for that anymore. They don't want to see what Howard Cosell was. They want, you know, they want good looking. They want very narrow. You know, very very normal. They don't want quirky. Right. Well. What whatever they consider their normal. Correct, right? correct. Um, we could just keep going here. I mean, I, this has been a blast. Um, I want to get to you covered the Olympics as well. I mean, the state high school hockey tournament. We could go on and on. That those three years, you guys changed the world. You changed. You, you set the bar so incredibly high that you actually lost the account. Explain how that went down. How it went from uh, KSTP back over to WCCO. Well, you know, I don't know what the rights were in all those years that Joe Boyle and WTCN, right, which covered the and they did a great job. For, for, for they did. They did a great job. So, but what you guys just Frank took Cattell, it to a completely different level. So somehow, you know, the tournament and it was a three-year contract ended up on KSTP, and so we added all these cameras. We extended the coverage. And it really, it quantified it as a mega TV event. And so the high school league, like they always do, you know, put their uh, contract out for bid. And so at the end of the third year, any TV station in the market would have a chance to bid on doing the next three years of the tournament. Right. And it was, it was, it was, there was a lot of anticipation I mean, in those days, I mean, you know, John Bream was covering the TV. Yes. You know, we had a, we had a TV reporter, we had a TV critic. Yes. And so there were, there were, there were lots of stories about what do we think the value of this might be? What do we think the bid looks like? And so the high school league had a lot of interest in the market about what might happen. And at the St. Paul, um, not the St. Paul hotel it used to be the Radisson. St. Right. Paul Radisson. Yeah. I remember they had a, they they had a uh, a conference or a meeting room that they had rented, and on the easel they had the four four stations, and they did a reveal of what the bids were and what you know who had won the right to do the next contract of the hockey tournament. Right. And I was I was you know working for KSDP. I had done the three tournaments. And, you know, I wasn't privy to anything that was happening at the third floor level of Hubbard Broadcasting, but I certainly believe that they wanted to retain this event and keep doing it. Right. And so I went there with a great deal of anticipation. And long story short, as they revealed all the bids, the bid the WCCO put forward that granted them the rights for the next three years of doing the tournament was at least four times, if not five times higher than what KSTP had bid. Wow. And so it became like, okay, WCCO, you know, it's your, you got the rights. Good luck, right? Because in those days, the mathematical equation of what they paid for the rights what it was going to cost them to produce 
and then ultimately try to sell to recoup their money, it didn't make economic sense. But the WCCO, the event itself was worth every penny that they invested in their brand. And so it was kind of an awkward business deal, but they got it. KSTP took a step back and, you know, the tournament, they did a great job. WCCO did a great job. Oh, they did a wonderful job. Yes. And Uh, they, the one thing they brought in, you know, like Chris Cuthbert from Hockey Night in Canada. I mean, they added, you know, national announcers. Uh, You know, we showcased Al Shaver because we could because he was your property. Yeah. On KSTP. And that was all good. Um, So it was just a different approach. Uh, They went to the matching blue blazers. You know, they did. They kind of took a hockey night in Canada approach to the tournament. Yeah, it was. Uh, there was some some golden years there. What is your as a, as a broadcaster? I mean, obviously Howard Cosell would be a highlight, just kind of having him there in the building. But covering the tournament for three years, uh, you're probably a sideline reporter. Uh, you weren't doing play. Were you doing color? Or what was your role in the whole process those three years? Well, <clears throat> we would did we did a lot of free content. Um, yeah, I mean, I did, did a lot of stories. So. Like I went up to International Falls and interviewed Larry Ross about, yep. you, you know, uh, his unbelievable uh, run of, uh, of teams from I Falls. You know, went to Hibbing and did the stories on, on the Micheletti family. Uh, yep. So my treasures were to be able to, you know, I mean, I think as Ted Brill in Grand Rapids. Yeah. Now there's trophies and there's 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 monuments named after Ted. Well, as a, as a builder of hockey, uh, I did stories with Ted Brill. I did, uh, I remember doing stories about, um, the, um, the expansion of hockey in Rochester that, you know, that it was an accepted high school sport and that the youth programs were exploding down there. And, yes. um, so some of my greatest memories and takeaways were to be able to do the stories on the builders of our great game of hockey in Minnesota. And, uh, I just, I, I made connections and made, uh, made some friends with some people that, you know, just to see them at the rink, um, would just, it would make you smile. I'm glad you brought that up. Cause I've done a ton of what you're doing, uh, prior to the state tournament. I, I make it a point to interview a player from each team prior to the state tournament, which takes us on some pretty crazy travels all over the state. And one of my takeaways, and I want to see if you agree with this or, or maybe could take it a little bit further is how much they know who you are and how much they appreciate what you're doing and how much, uh, they just love the, the, how much they love hockey and the fact that you're in their town and they're introducing you to their, to their rank or their home or those things. What are some of those takeaways that you, from, from doing those special interest stories? Uh, just, just as you lay out there. I mean, um, I mean, we would go in, you know, I remember working, uh, went into Roseau and, um, you know, I don't know if you ever got to meet Bernie Burgraff. Okay? No, but I know Bernie the name. Burgraff, Bernie was the heartbeat of Roseau hockey. And he had kids in the program. One of them, Mike, went on to North Dakota, which I got to know Mike Burgraff. But um, so Mike, you know, I said, hey, we're coming in. We'd like to shoot some uh, stuff at the rink. He got every Mike Squirt P 
Peewee, Bantam, everybody from from uh, Rozo out at, on the ice. Um, and not that they wouldn't have been there anyway, but he wanted to make sure that if we were going to be doing something for the high school hockey tournament's coverage, that it would be there putting their best foot forward. Um, and then, you, you know, to, to, to uh, be able to get to know Aaron Broughton, Paul Broughton, Neil Broughton, and to cover them at the University of Minnesota and, and then in the, in both uh, into the pros uh, and then after. I, I mean, you know, there's just uh, the hockey names in Minnesota to, you know, to be able to know uh, John Mariucci, you know, to ever, if you've ever, did you ever shake hands with John Mariucci? Yes. Okay, then you'll never forget it. No, and, no, and it's you the claw. You can't, you can't, yeah, the claw. And you can't tell. And and then when you hear the story that he got his hand caught in a hockey door, and yeah, slammed on it, and and for him to live and survive that, you look at the hand and say, well, it would take a mitt like that to be able to endure that pain and live for another day, because I'd be crippled for life, and uh, if if I ever got my hand in a hockey door, yeah. Um, but you know, just but the great the great names of hockey. Um, to spend what what time I did around Herb Brooks, and you know, I remember you know as a reporter for Channel Five going down the street down to uh, the old Williams Arena, and Herb's coaching the Gophers. And as a young reporter, you know you'd go in with an idea, you know, hey. Uh, uh, so-and-so had a great weekend. They scored three goals. I <clears throat> go, go to uh, practice and stand there with my cameraman. Herb would skate by and say, hey, Herbie, we want to talk to, uh, you know, we want to talk to uh, McClanahan. And uh, he'd skate around a couple times. He'd come over. He says, you don't want to talk to McClanahan. <laughs> I said, really? He says, that's son of a, you know, he'd rip into the, whoever it was. I'm using Rob right. because yeah. I know uh- as okay, an example, he'd, he'd, hypothetically, yeah, he, he, he says, you, he doesn't need his ego pumped any more than it. You don't want to talk, talk to so-and-so some grinder, <laughs> right? Some St. Paul grinder that's yeah. you know, fighting for his minutes. Walk says, on. Really? Right. Right. Yes. And he, Herbie wanted to send a signal to his team. Okay. We've won four in a row. We're doing great. And, this TV station, they're not talking to the frontline guys. They're talking to my muckers and my penalty killers. Right. Okay? But Herbie had a, a reason for everything he did. So I, mean, I can tell you two, three times I got in the car to go back to say, I said, I didn't want to talk to such and such. That Herbie, he's, he, you know, what the hell is he thinking? Well, he was thinking a lot further down the road than just a reporter out to do a story for the six o'clock news. Oh yeah. Yeah. And, I, I could and the, see and the that. More time, the more time you spent around Herbie, the more you understood that was part of his genius. Yeah. Well, speaking of that, it's a great segue into where were you during, from a reporter perspective, because it lists here that you were covered the winter Olympics in 80, 84 and 88, which that's a, Yep. You could do a documentary on just where you were and what you had to do. Um, I don't want to ask the, a, a simple question. Give me something that you, you know, would be, you know, that, that your takeaway from 1980, because there's been so much been done on that. Okay. Well, in 1980, as you know, the team was based out of the Met Center. Right? Yeah, that so, was their training ground. Correct. Okay. And the players, and, and, and remember, uh, 
1980, you know, I'm about the same age as all these Miracle on Ice guys, right? Yeah, you're both and, maybe a year older, but not much. Right, right, okay. So if they weren't... Buzzy Snyder's probably older than you at oh, this yeah, point. Exactly. Yeah, right? Yeah. Oh, yeah. So when they weren't at Met Center practicing, their, fav- their, fav- their, their favorite uh, hanging out spot was Eddie Webster, <laughs> which you might remember. Oh, yeah. Right across, right across Cedar Avenue, you know, next to the Decathlon Yeah, I was going to say right by the Decathlon Club. Yep. And so uh, you could go there on, you know, just about any other night, and you'd run into some of these guys, right? So I... I had covered all the pre-Olympic games. I knew all the players, but when it came to 1980s coverage of KSTP and the Olympics, ABC only issued us two credentials, one photographer, one reporter. And we had a reporter at KSTP, good old guy, really soul of the earth guy, Ed Cairo. I was going to say Ed Cairo. Yep. And so we were excited. I mean, the, the video cameras were new. Sony was test marketing something. We were the first station in the country to use a, the, the, the portable cameras that we had. And they were, uh, we were allowed to use ABC satellite out of Lake Placid to get our stories back. So there was a lot of excitement and a lot of commitment to our coverage. So they sent Ed Cairo and his photographer out to Lake Placid 10 days before anybody even showed up in Lake Placid. Okay, well, the more stories that Ed did, the more everybody recognized this is going to separate what we've got in terms of access and coverage than anybody else. Mm -hmm. So Ed ended up working like 18 hours a day for two and a half, three weeks, and the Olympics had barely started. Ed comes down with laryngitis. No way. I mean, uh, I mean a serious case where he could barely interview somebody, but they couldn't hear his question. So, and there was so much hype and there was so much going on, yet we only had two credentials. And, you know, security was what it was, but you weren't going to be able to talk somebody into just letting you get into the building, Right. I, I'm, I'm a cub reporter at KSDP. Okay. We are three days into the 1980 winter Olympics, the U S they played their first game actually before the opening ceremony yeah, against they, Sweden. They, yep. So they, they win their first, they, they, tie. they tie and then they win. Then they tie and they win. And Ed can't do post game interviews after the second hockey game because he can't talk. I came to work the next morning and I walk in and the news director says, go home and pack a bag. You're going to Lake Placid. I said, okay. Yeah. You're going to have to fly through Albany, uh, Chicago to Albany. And we'll have a car pick you up in Albany. And then it's a two hour drive to Lake Placid. Okay. So I go home, pack my bags. I'm going to the 1980 winter Olympics. I get up and I could do everything except get into the, to the, the media venues. So because I had relationships with all the hockey players, I could stand, I could, I could get into the games cause I could buy a ticket. Mm-hmm. Okay. So I bought a ticket to get into the games 
after the games, I knew where the hockey players were coming out of the rink. And because I knew all these guys from right. my coverage leading up to it, I had great access. So I couldn't go to the news conferences, which Herb Brooks wasn't bringing any players to anyway, but I had the access and I could get to our Minnesota guys. And so that's what I started. I started to do all the, the, uh, the interviews, building the coverage, and Ed was still producing because he had all these inroads to what he was doing. A lot of the stories he had started before his voice went bad. And so I became integrated into our Olympic coverage. And so I was at the Miracle on Ice game. I was in the rink. I had paid $125 for a ticket two hours before the game outside the arena. I sat on the second deck. I sat behind a Russian couple with the, with the, the fur hat. And when Mark Johnson scored that goal at the end of the second period with just beating the buzzer, these two Russians in front of me were swearing up a storm. It was, I mean, I can remember it like it was yesterday. And because this game was not broadcast live on TV, we were in, this game ended during our six o'clock news at KSTP. So they decided I could do a phone report. So I, as Al Michaels was counting down 10, nine, eight, I'm in a phone booth on the mezzanine level of Lake Placid. And I can, I can, Yes, I, I can feel the rafters, the rafters swaying because people were so excited and celebrating it. And I was on the air in a phone booth at the Miracle on Ice in Lake Placid. And I worked on a, uh, uh, an anniversary show with producer Eric Gislason last year because it was the 40th anniversary of a Miracle on Ice. I went back to Lake Placid last February and I stood in the spot where they pulled out the phone booth because nobody uses pay phones anymore. But I found the spot that I had stood in 40 years before to report that the United States had defeated the Soviets. So, so you go on the news, they, they bring you in, they dial it up, right? And what are you doing? Are you describing the game? Because everybody, had, at least Rubes like me, we were listening to the game on the radio. So what were you providing the news that night at 6 o'clock? Just the, kind of well, the natural excitement? Right. I, I, you, you had to provide the narrative. And you know, no pictures of the game were available because ABC was protecting Right, their video until after it aired in a post pre-produced, you know, it was the biggest part of their broadcast that night, but yeah. the game had already been played and a lot of people already knew the result. Oh yeah. And so you didn't need social media so to was, know, right? You didn't need it. Right. Like, right. Yeah. It was amazing. So I w- it was like, well, give us a narrative of, you know, what was the crowd like? What's going on there right now? And, you know, it was bedlam. I mean, it was, it was, you know, as I, I've said before, now I know what a miracle feels like because yeah. the rafters were shaking and swaying and everybody was just that excited. Did you have any idea the political implications that would have three, four, five years later? 
No, how about 40 years later? Yeah. <laughs> it's no still, idea. Yeah, it's, and it still has been, it not only has been ranked as one of the greatest U.S. athletic achievements, it is in many circles regarded as the greatest moment in U.S. athletic history. So, I, 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 this is for the media nerds out there. If, you, if you're not a media nerd, just kind of fast forward a minute or two. I want to understand how the camera and the credentials, first of all, you couldn't change the credentials from Ed to you? That, that's what seemed like a no. You could not do that. Okay. All right. And the, the, the non, camera. Non-transferable. Okay. So the, the, so the camera part of it. So was Ed and his cameraman, were they able to go in to the building or no? Oh, yeah, yeah. No. Ed, was, Ed was there. And the camera, you know, Denny DeGrizel, longtime KSTP. Was that your guy too, right? Okay. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, I mean, I worked with Denny a long time. Okay. And so Denny, you know, now Ed and I are sharing Denny, but Denny, you know, we've got, we've got footage that Denny was, Denny shot the whole game. And he did. we got the end of it. Yes. And in fact, the Terry Fogarty artwork yep when everybody's gloves and arms are up in the air okay mm-hmm. that's a still that still image is the video location of the kstp camera really that standing standing on the first mezzanine of the lake placid ice arena that was his vantage point Got and because terrence terrence fogarty wasn't there right but he came into kstp captured that that still frame and he did his artist rendition of that moment through that image. So where does Denny go once the game is over? Where do you go once the, besides after going to the phone booth, after phone booth, where does Denny go? Cause I'm guessing you want to get some Minnesotan on the air and get footage and get that back to the twin cities. Correct. Is that how it was the, the MO? Well, well, remember, remember now. So, the game ends, but it was about 6.15, 6.20 my recollection. Somewhere okay. during the 6 o'clock. Okay. okay, yep, yep. So, so, and in those days, you know, 6.30, we're off the air. Okay, the newscast is done. Yep. Okay. We're not, and now the network is going to pick up its network coverage. Of the Olympics. At 6.30. Yep. Okay, so, so we couldn't do anything the next opportunity we have to broadcast to our Minnesota audience is the 10 o'clock news. Yep. So game ends. Denny goes, I mean, Denny went outside with me. We went outside the player's entrance and that's where we got the great footage of all the flags. Jumping up and down. This little town, this little village of Lake Placid is full of the Olympic flavor of, what does a miracle look like? And it's all these people, you know, jumping up and down. And then we staffed, stood outside. We weren't covering the news conferences because there wasn't anything to get at the news conference because we wanted access to our Minnesota guys. Correct. And that's where we collected all the interviews as they came out. So and, do you, you remember know, who you them. interviewed? Do you remember who you interviewed? I, well, I only remember because it was part of the, this Eric Gislason project made in Minnesota or miracle in Minnesota. I interviewed Phil Bercota. I interviewed, um, uh, Bill Baker. I interviewed Rob McClanahan. Um, 
So I you covered the whole state uh, there with those three interviews, right? You got a, you got a statewide yeah, appeal John, there. Yeah, John Harrington. John Harrington was a great interview. I mean, he was, you know, I love Neil Broughton, but he was never a gifted interview. <laughs> uh, but, but, but like John Harrington was, was really well-spoken. I interviewed uh, Mike Ruzioni. How could you not interview the guy with the game-winning goal? Um, so we interviewed all these guys and, and, and sent back all these interviews that, of course, became part of our 10 o'clock coverage. Some guy chops it up. How much of the 30 minutes of the news do you think was dedicated to that? Was it not all of it or 20% of it? How, how do you think that 30 minutes rolled out? I, you know, to this day, I've never seen it. But Isn't I, that funny? You know, yeah. I mean, but I have to believe that in those days, it would have been, hey, the, the Olympic team won, and here's some of the interviews that we got in Lake Placid, and then they'd talk about how people, I mean, wasn't the, the scene back here? Don't you remember people, like, honking their horns driving oh, down the road? It was insane. Everybody kind of, it's kind of a where were you moment. You know, my moment was, it's so funny, we were, list, I had a game over at Augsburg Arena, and Tom Chorsky, for whatever reason, he wasn't on my team that year. We were a year apart, so this was the year we weren't together. And we drove over together to Augsburg for a playoff game. And it was one of those playoff games where youth, sometimes you got a break in between periods. Between periods, he uh, we get off the ice, and it was between the second and third period. And he goes, we beat the Russians. That's what I'll never forget he's told me that. For the next whatever, I could barely concentrate on my own hockey game that day because of what had just happened because we knew it was a close game before we went onto the ice, but we didn't know. And he, meanwhile, he's in the lobby or somewhere listening on the radio and he wasn't watching my game. He was just, you know, probably on the edge of his seat. So that's the, that's my story. And I just remember going home that night and it was just, we I couldn't wait to get home and to watch, you know, absorb all the media we could possibly get our, our eyes and ears on. Wow. That's uh... That is, uh, I mean, what a memory. It what, was. What, and, and we'll, I, don't, I don't know if anything can top it, just based on the political environment and everything that was going on. Okay, so 84 Olympics, those were over in Europe, right? Because I know 88 was in right. Calgary, right? Yep, 84 was Sarajevo, Yugoslavia. That's right, yeah, there and, we go. Now, yep, and uh, uh, and Lou Barrow was the head coach. Were you? Right? Were they, you? They uh, were you the guy then? Were you? Did you have the Ed Cairo credential then? Yes. Yeah. Okay. By '84, I, I had my head by my own credential, and uh, we sent we sent uh, four people over to Sarajevo. We sent uh, Bob Bruce, who was the, yep. the six and ten o'clock anchor at the time. I was the reporter, and Denny Degrizel and Jim Rudy were the photographers. And we covered all of, you know, all the Minnesotans. And um, uh, so Doug Woog, Doug Woog was an assistant coach on that uh, 84 Olympic team, um, which again was, you know, that was a disaster, that team. Yes. They had, they, picked a lot, they had picked a lot of NHL stars. I mean, Mike Richter was the goalie. He got lit up in the first game, gave up seven goals to... I forget who we opened it up with, but it was just a, it was a real slow start. Um, and it wasn't long before we were out of the medal round. Yeah, um, it was right away. And uh, I mean, you know, Eddie, Eddie Olchek uh, was on that team. Yep. He was like 16 um, he, or 18 years old, real young. Right. 
but a gift to Gab, man. I mean, he was he was a good interview. Always always was a good interview with uh, Eddie Olchek. And um, uh, yeah, so we, I mean, Sarajevo, you know, marvelous experience. Um, it was, uh, you know, a country in a lot of uh, disrepair. Um, and of course, now it doesn't even exist anymore. Um, but uh, that, was, that was quite a memorable Olympics. It wasn't a very successful one for the U.S. Uh, there weren't a lot of medals, but uh, it, was, it was a spectacle. Then came back, and then uh, 88, four years later, we did Calgary, Alberta. And uh, truth be told, the, uh, really the highest profile athlete that we had going into that Olympics was a figure skater. Uh, her name was Jill Trenery. Yes, from Minnetonka, and, uh, right? Minnetonka, and she had won the world the year before. And so she was uh, highly regarded as a, ch- a chance to win the gold medal in women's figure skating. And uh, she ended up finishing fourth. She yeah. finished just outside the medal. And uh, and Debbie Thomas and... Uh, Katerina Witt, was, was it? it? Well, Katerina was the star of the 84 Olympics. Mm. I don't know if she, that she was around for 88. I get anyway, those two mixed was, up. But spent a month in Calgary, and uh, uh, we had a lot of success up there. Uh, not hockey so much with Dave, unfortunately. Uh, but uh, uh, I remember we had uh, some speed skaters and had figure skaters and curlers. The curling was coming into uh, being a sport. And uh, the, co- the cover in Olympics is, uh, they always say, is a once-in-a-lifetime experience. I was lucky enough to do it three times. All right, so let's fast forward. Uh, you play for Dave Peterson in 1975. Someone tells you that in 1975, in 13 years, you're going to be a sports reporter at the Olympics, and Dave Peterson's going to be the U.S. Olympic coach. Would you, would you bonk the guy over the head for saying something so stupid? That's the appeal to hockey. I mean, I talk about, you know, it, we're a community. It's a small group. And when you're in that club, you feel very special. And so, yeah, the circumstances played out that uh, I was a uh, credentialed the reporter covering the 88 team, which had a lot of, uh, you know, uh, it had a lot of fallout. And a lot of people weren't happy with the system that Dave had put into place. And he found himself having to defend a lot of his decisions about who he picked on the team and how they were playing. And I tell the story about uh, going to a practice rink about four or five days into that Winter Olympics. The U.S. was off to a miserable start. There was a lot of uh, disregard for Dave and a lot of people critical of Dave. And I went to cover a practice and he came off the ice and there was an immediate scrum of reporters. And I was there with my KSTP photographer, Denny, and I uh, started to ask Dave uh, some questions. And uh, one of somebody in the crowd uh, was going to follow up on one of my questions and ask their own question. And Dave stopped him and said, no, I'm here to talk to Rob Lear. And the reporter said, oh, so I carried on and then, you know, felt like I ought to be taking this interview as far as I can, uh, trying to ask as many questions as I can that these other reporters are probably 
wanting to have answers to. And uh, we got through it. And uh, Dave says, I'm done, walks away. And I remember these international reporters, including the New York Times guy saying, how did you pull that off? How did you get the coach to talk to only you? I said, ah, that's a Minnesota thing. I didn't dare confess that he was my old high school hockey coach and I'd known him for that many years. And that obviously he felt uh, a little bit more comfortable talking to someone that maybe was not going to uh, rip into uh, his character and his decision-making. I have to believe that I, I still ask good questions. I think I was just probably more fair than other journalists might have been at that time. Yeah, how interesting is that? That uh, you could have blown his cover. You could have said, "Well, I play goalie," but you, you, you <laughs> held it. You held it close to the vest, correct? Yeah, and I I do it again. Dave was a great guy. We we lost him way too young. Uh, Dave just died at a very premature age, and he had a lot of life left. And his contributions to USA Hockey uh, were just really beginning. And uh, Good, good guy. He was my golf coach for one year. He was like, I said, typing teacher. Like, what do you mean? He, in 84, I believe he was an assistant. So between 84 and 88, he kind of still hung out at Southwest and was a teacher. He was working towards his pension still. And uh, so we had these, at Southwest, we had these rare Dave Peterson moments where he was your teacher, a substitute teacher, the golf coach. He, he had all kind of these odd jobs. And I just remember him as being extremely funny, kind of a dry humor. But he always was oh, trying yeah. to crack you up and, and keep you loose and, and had a really fun, fun personality. I, I really enjoyed being around him. And then, I, and then, sure enough, two years after high school graduation, he's coaching the Olympic team. I'm like, I had this much access to this guy. I didn't realize it. I just thought he was just a high school gym teacher high school hockey coach and later did I find out he was kind of a legend well and, and you know he he had made the commitment I mean he moved out of Minneapolis to Colorado Springs to be closer to USA hockey right um and then for him to get that job in 88 was really you know they were it was kind of paying him back that he had paid his dues and that they thought that he had earned that and uh he was no less of a coach uh, you know, as we all know about hockey, you can have the best team in the uh, on, on the planet, but on any given night, unless the right things happen, or you know, you know, things things can go the wrong way in a hurry, and uh, that's what happened to that '88 team. So backtrack a little bit. I, mean, I want to just kind of touch on this because I know you had to have been front and center and known all these. A lot of these guys were Minnesotans. It's the nineteen eighty one North Star run to the Cup against uh, against the Islanders. What are your recollections of? I mean, there's so many good ones, but what what are a couple recollections of that run that that year? Uh, well, it, <clears throat> that particular team, you know, uh, to win in the Boston Garden. You know, the first, the, the playoffs that spring opened at Boston. Yes. And the North Stars had never won at Boston, at the Boston Garden. And that's, you know, where, uh, where Glenn Sonmore had gotten the, uh, the, the email, or not probably even got, got a letter, got a letter from a gal named Mary Puckert. Mary Puckert was a longtime hockey fan, and she told Glenn, was coaching the North Stars, if you wear a patch over your eye that he had injured in a hockey, yep. you know, in a hockey uh, accident, um, I think that's going to bring you the luck you need. 
so, so I out barely of, out remember of this. I barely remember this. Yeah, Keep okay. going. But out of, out of, out of nowhere, out of nowhere, we, we, you know, show up at the Boston garden. We're going to watch the, watch the playoff game. And Glenn is, you know, I said to Denny, who I was traveling with, I said, what's Glenn doing? He's wearing a pirate's patch over his eyes. <laughs> and that, you know, then they had, uh, uh, Steve Payne scored in overtime, and the North Stars found a way to win for the first time ever in Boston Garden. And uh, that was a defining moment of that spring. And um, then they played the uh, memory serves that the Sabres, then Flames, or was it Flames, then Sabres? It was one of the two. Uh, You know, I think it was was Sabres, then Flames. Yeah, I can never remember. Sabres. Yep. And I, I remember going up uh, in the, in the um, but in the, against the Sabers. That's uh, we get the news after morning skate with the Buffalo series that Bobby Smith, you know, the star, one of the stars on the team, his mother had passed away overnight. And so the word was that Bobby uh, had just gotten word that his mom had passed, and that he wasn't going to be available for the game. And Everybody's okay. That's understandable. Come to the game, and here's Bobby gets get, getting dressed. That he went back to the hotel and said, "You know what? My mom would want me to play this game." And I mean, here was this 21, 22 year old kid who was well beyond his years. Yeah. And I just, I'll, I'll just never forget that because at the time, I again, I wasn't much older than any of these guys. And I'm thinking, how could I, how, how would I have dealt with that? And Bobby went out there, constant pro, um, you know, they won the game. That's, that's the spring that, you know, Dino had the unbelievable run. Oh. I think he had two, two goals that, uh, in that one game. Um, but I mean, it was, he was like magic. Everything, everything Dino fired at the net somehow went in. Do you remember those Sinclair um, dinosaurs that people Got at the oh, gas stations. Sure. I mean, oh, yeah. some of the get-ups back then, man, they were a lot more creative then than they are now. Well, and, you know, part of it was the, <clears throat> the twins were down in those years. But um, I think the North Star players on some of those teams were some of the highest-profile athletes we had in Minnesota. Oh, yeah. I mean, the Vikings, the Vikings were down just a little bit. The twins were really down. Way down. Um and there was no Timberwolves, um, no soccer. Well, I guess the Minnesota Kicks were around, but uh, no, those were those were some some fun teams. And and, and covering Lou Nanny um, in his uh, you know general manager positions of all those years, uh, he always just made it fun and entertaining. And yeah. uh, boy, that was that was a great run. And then <clears throat> to do it again in '91, um, you know, that was that was a lot of fun as well. Um, I want to get to your current career, but before we get to that, a couple more t- things to check off. And this is a weird one. Um, there was a kid uh, from Czechoslovakia, or maybe it was the Czech Republic back then. I can't remember when it was split, uh, named Francek Musel. Um, Francek, uh, uh, what would be the word when you leave? I can't remember what they call that anymore. Um, when he left. Well, the, 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 under the, the legal term, is he defected? Defected, thank you. Sorry. But, he, he, yeah, but he, there was a, there was <clears throat> there was a, there was an immigration loophole 
there was an immigration uh, loophole that you might remember that, you know, that the Detroit Red Wings had made, you know, very popular in the 80s was with Jim Delvano and all the Russians yep. that had come over to the NHL, you know, Fedorov and et cetera, et cetera. And so if you, if anybody, you know, willingly would, you know, can, you know, uh, if anybody willingly would uh, agree to go across the border um, and apply for a visa, they would, they would be granted that. It was only the government that was holding them back and they never wanted anybody to be put in a position to make that decision for themselves. Right. And so Louis went through his, you know, his international connections and, and, uh, and he was, Louis was convinced that this was going to be the biggest international sleuth, you know, since, uh, since James Bond. Right. Oh yeah. And made, made a very high profile play and got Franny to come over. And, uh, uh, you know, one of the great, one of the great, uh, Minnesota hockey names member might remember uh, Doc Nagabots. Yep. You remember Doc Nagabots? Yep. Uh, longtime University of Minnesota uh, physician, a good friend of her Brooks's and all that. Well, when Franisak Muso came over to the United States, he, he was the billet family that Franisak played or, or lived with. And uh, so Franisak lived uh, in Edina with Doc Nagabods, and that's how he transitioned into um, the American lifestyle. And uh, but it was, you know, typical Lunani. Uh, uh, there were, you know, backdoor passages and there were cars and there were, you know, he, he couldn't list his name any place and. You know, he had to get by, you know, certain escorts to make sure that they that they, they wouldn't talk him out of it. And uh, <laughs> he was very, it was very successful. I don't know what the pro numbers ever, what the stat line was with Franisak Museum. It's not very good. But it was, no. It, it wasn't it was, bad, but it wasn't you know, worth all yeah. of the hubbub, that's for sure. Right, 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 right. And so it was, uh, uh, yeah. Didn't was, you have this? Weren't you the scoop master on that thing? I mean, I, if I recall, I haven't really verified this, but if I recall, KSTP was the one who broke the story that, and before ESPN, before any of these other outlets could get that story, I believe, I thought it was you who had that story first that we had. Was, right, well, you've got a good memory because I did break. I broke the story, and it's a story that broke my heart. And here's why. Oh, okay, I good. You, I, I, I told you about my good fortune that I came to work one day, and the next thing I know, I was in Lake Placid, New York, right? Yeah. And I was covering the 1980 Olympics. So I had worked on this story, and, you know, for all I remember, you know, Lou probably told me that he was working this, and when it happened, I was going to get it. And so I had gone to my, you know, to the Hubbard Broadcasting Management and said, you know, this is an unbelievable story and we're going to have a chance to do a ride along and travel along and capture all of it and be the first to report it. And while, you know, Stanley Hubbard and all the powers to be thought, great. I love this story. This is terrific. Um, let's do it. 
So I had my, I had a bag packed. I had my visa. I had my passport. I was all set to go. And when it happened, when we said, you know, when it got word that Louis was like leaving tomorrow morning to fly over to get to bring this player home, um, I got the word that my <laughs> that the, the sportscaster Bob Bruce, my colleague, who was a high-profile ten o'clock guy. He had convinced the management that this story was so big that we shouldn't send the reporter, but we should send the guy on the 10 o'clock news no. because it was a, big, a bigger story. And so um, everybody agreed that, you know, yeah, you can still, you know, he's already broke the story. We've already brokered the deal. We're going to be able to go, but let's send Bob and we won't send, we won't send Rob. And so, I broke the story, but it's a story that broke my heart because, uh, um, and I don't know if it was just, you, you know, I, I, I was excited that I had broken the story. I just had my heart set on going. And the, the one takeaway from that troop, from that, that trip is they came through Italy on the way back. And of course, the nanny, you know, Italian influence of Fort Francis and his, his immigrants are all from Italy that, Louis took Bob Bruce to some fashion store and they ended up buying like $300 Italian shoes for like $20 a pair. And so he came back with a trunk full of Italian handmade shoes. And every time Bob wore a pair of those Italian shoes, it just, it brought back some bad memories to this day has triggered some, has just triggered us, you know, I got to get over it, but I had a hard time getting over that one. So note to self, don't wear Ferragamo shoes around Rob Blair. <laughs> whatever, whatever it was. Whatever it was. That's the only Italian but shoe I, I can come up with. So. Yeah. But I did break the, I did break the story, so thank you. I nice do remember that. I was like, that. gosh, this guy is just scooping everybody on everything. I kind of, from a distance, had a lot of respect for that. I really did. Um, there, there's the well, as you know, because you've done a lot of it, there's nothing like breaking a story. It's I mean, the best. The, the, the exhilaration and the rush of breaking a story, um, is that's why you do it. And you want to get it right. You need to get it right. And, and to be calculated enough that when you've confirmed everything and you're first out there, that's the best of the reporting business. Yeah, it is the ultimate compliment when your competitors question whether it's true or not. And you know it's true, right? Exactly. That is the best. All right, uh, let's do a couple quick hitters here. Um, We've already talked about a few of these people. I had them written down. Actually, I think you've brought up every one of the people on here except J.P. Parisi. I had Lou Nanny. So just a quick hitter. Uh, What are your takeaways working with Lou in all the different capacities, whether it was be broadcasting or president or coach or hockey dad? You know, he's hockey grandpa, all of the above. That's what Lou has probably meant to you. What are your takeaways with Lou? You know, I don't know if I've ever been around for as long as I was around him, someone that was such a positive influence. Uh, I mean, Louis was at the ultimate spin on everything. And and his intentions were always, you know, that it, there's a brighter tomorrow. And what's not to like about that? What's not to admire about someone that always saw the glass half full? And that's Lunani. Um, and, um, and not in a BS capacity you know louis 
and, and uh, you know, I don't get, know if you have to edit this, but Louis, one of his favorite, his favorite uh, comments to me when I covered him over all those years, when I'd say, hey, Lou, can you confirm this is happening or that's happening? Lou would say, Rob, you can't shit a shitter. Okay, meaning if I, if, I, if, I was, if I was fishing for something, if I had something that was maybe half right and I was framing it in a way that I knew it to be true and maybe it wasn't always 100% true, Louie would always say, Rob, you can't shit a shitter, meaning he was full of BS, okay? And he knew that I was half full of BS and that's how he wouldn't even answer the question. He would just set the record straight that way. Oh, that's and funny. So, uh, uh, but I, you know, what's not to like about Lou Nanny and the way that his impacted the game of hockey in Minnesota, his contributions, his connections. Um, I don't know how. I don't know if he has any enemies in the game, and if they do, they're just they're misguided uh, because Lou Nanny is all about the betterment of the game of hockey. That's true. Uh, speaking of betterment of game of hockey, I can only imagine how many different ways you came across Herb Brooks's path uh, during your career. Oh, in fact, you know, I, I did. I, I broke. I broke the story, and one of the many times that he was named coach of the North Stars. Right. But um, I remember calling Louie, and he was on his. Anyway, he was in a car in Manhattan and I'm asking him about Herbie and it put him and he was so amused by that. I had tracked him down. He said, rap, I got Herbie here in the front seat of the car with me right now. (laughs) And and Herbie says, Hey, how you doing? (laughs) And I mean, there were just so many instances in which Lou Nanny was, you know, attached to Herbie for some hockey achievement, development, storyline that they were they, they were practically, you know, connected at the hip. Yeah. They were like uh and, kissing cousins, that's for sure. Yeah. And you know, one of the great stories, uh you know Herbie, you know, he liked his golf. You know, mm-hmm. he I mean he, you know, he loved to play golf. And he used to play over uh what's the name of that country club off of uh, Midland Hills Midland is Midland Hills the one off of uh, uh, 36 yeah highway 36 there right yep 280 and 36 so, right in there 280 and 36 yep yep and at at least a couple of occasions one time when he was going to get hired by the New York Rangers and I'm trying to get a hold of him and you can't get a hold of him I'd go to the, over to Midland Hills, walk into the pro shop, say, can I use a golf cart? And I'd go, I'd go find Herbie on the golf course and say, Herb, you know, what's the latest? I just talked to Art Gaminsky. Remember, Art was his agent. Yeah. yeah. And uh, uh, would ask him about, uh, you know, has he had taken the Rangers job or was going to do the – and anyway, I mean – some guys would run you out of town or some guys would make your life miserable as a reporter to say, you're just being too intrusive. Herbie recognized the gamemanship of what was going on. Right. And he, and, and, and he was respectful in that way that, 
you know, you're working as hard at trying to get to the bottom of a story as I'm hoping that my forwards are working in the corner to get the puck. Right. And so I, you know, my relationship with Herb was, you know, if he thought I was going, I was over the top or what I was doing wasn't uh, above board, he didn't treat it that way. He treated it as here's someone that's just trying to get to a story and work his, you know, his butt off to get it done. And so I just, I always had a very professional, respectful uh, relationship with Herb. And I was, I was just sad that his life had came, come to an end Way because there again had so much to give back to the game and was, you know, I mean, think about what he did to, to the St. Cloud program and Cato program. I mean, his footprint and impact of spreading college hockey across the state of Minnesota is immeasurable. I mean, nobody promoted and made it happen uh, in a way more grander than Herb Brooks. No, no question about that. There's no arguing that. Um, how about Glenn Sonmore? That's a, a name that we all just as kids just looked up to as just kind of like the grandpa. You know, he was kind of like just the, the older version of Herb Brooks. He had such a positive effect on the game. And the difference between Herb Brooks and Glenn Sonmore was Glenn didn't have a filter. Okay. Her, her release was calculated, right? Right. Glenn, Glenn was whatever, whatever Glenn was thinking, you knew what he was thinking and you could ask him about it. And he was just so, uh, uh, again, a very positive. He wasn't a, a negative Nelly. And there's, there's a reason that Glenn Sonmore, Herb Brooks, uh, Doug Woog, why these guys all hung together. They were all positive influences. They, they, they weren't naysayers and negativity, you know? Um, and, uh, and, and Glenn was just such a dynamic. Uh, I mean, you could never be, if you were ever in a room with Glenn Sonmore, you knew he was in the room because he would light up a room and, you know, he was louder than the next guy, but not because he was craving attention. It was just, that was Glenn. Okay. Glenn was, you know, he always was an octave above everybody else. Um, but always spoke with such passion and one of the world's greatest storytellers, right? I mean, to sit, to be able to, to sit into a room, whether it was in a restaurant on the road, traveling with, a, with one of his teams or on a bus somewhere going coast to coast to hear Glenn Sonmore just recite story after story was just, uh, uh, there's very few in the game that have got his, uh, his, his passion to tell a good hockey story than Glenn Sonmore. I miss him dearly. Yeah, he was, I, I remember watching Gopher games where he was the color commentator and it was just like, you know, people say you could listen to Morgan Freeman, read, read a soup can, read a soup can. I could listen to that guy talk about anything hockey. And it was just, like you said, a great storyteller. He just did a wonderful job. And it was always, like you said, super positive. Well, and I, you know, I, I did go for hockey on the uh, KSTP radio as, as the host. I just would say hello and do the between period stuff. And the, all the years that Glenn was doing the colored commentating. And uh, I always used, you know, I always thought as a reporter, you got to be somewhat objective when you're in that position. And Glenn, <laughs> was how many not. times he, the three, 
the three stars of the game were all, you know, were always, you know, the Tom Crowley. I Crowley, forgot Tom about Crowley, that. Tom yes. Crowley. I mean, it was always the, the Gophers would get, you know, get thumped by North Dakota, you know, let's say four to one. And, and he'd have three Gophers as the three stars of the game. And uh, he'd never apologize. And then he, he uh, that was Glenn. I mean, he was, that's, uh, that, that's who Glenn was. But and, that's, uh, as, as, as you want a homer, but you don't want someone who's like egregious, but his homerisms were the best. I mean, when, when there was a bad call against the Gophers on the broadcast, you could hear him whining. You'd be like, oh, that's a terrible call. You know, he was almost like a fan inside the booth. But he was also yeah. very professional in the way he delivered it. And he hate, you know, he hated anybody in stripes. I don't care, you know, that, that no, there was yes. never a referee yes. that, that wasn't, you know, that wasn't cheating him or, or you know, ganging up on, uh, on Glenn or his team. And so he would always call out referees. He never agreed with any of them. Yes. Which was always just a, a characteristic of them. And, uh, uh, no, just. Uh, That's funny. That no is play. funny. Yeah. You know, I, I don't want to miss this. And, and I was, you know, pumping your tires a little bit about the Frantisac Musil stuff. But what people don't remember about you, and I want to make sure if, as we as we do this and this Rob Lear anthology is you were one heck of a after your, how did you go from sports reporter to investigator? Was this just something like you stumbled across or you found a passion in or how did you, how did you get to that stage of your career? Well, I was fortunate to work, you know, for a family broadcasting company, the Harvard broadcasting uh, company and that, you know, their loyalty with me and my loyalty to them was kind of, you know, the best of, of both worlds. And, um, I did sports broadcasting for, for 11 years and did all the, the sports department stuff. And it came at a time of my life, you know, I was now a young parent. And so my boys were, you know, uh, nine, 10, 11 years old. And they were playing, you know, peewee and Bantam hockey. And, you know, I really enjoyed my time as a weekend sports reporter and, uh, and sports caster, but weekends are time when your family's your most engaged. Yes. And I was missing, I was missing, you know, I couldn't take my kids to the rink. I couldn't go watch their games. I, you know, I wanted to coach their baseball teams in the summer and I was really conflicted because I, you know, every weekend night till 1030 at night, I, I was in a studio. And I, I loved the job, but I didn't love the time away from my family. And so really, um, I started to explore with the station. And that's why I said I was blessed to work with the Hubbard family was that it could have been when I was asking questions, is there something else I could do Right. that some states would say, well, you know, you want to make a switch over to news, you can go, go to Duluth and start over again or, right. you know, we don't need you here, but, but the one thing I had done as a sports reporter, which differentiated me in the market was I was a reporter that was breaking news. And right. so I had a news director, news director at that time that said, if you can take the same passion and if you still want the chase of a good story, I'm willing to invest in you and put you over here in a news role. And if you can break as many stories on the news side as you broke on the sports side, you know, I, I'm all for that. So I was up for the challenge because now I wasn't working weekends. So now I'm working during the week. And 
for the last 10 years, I worked as a news reporter for the last, for the last seven years in my broadcast career, I was the senior investigative reporter. And I really loved that niche of investigative reporting. And we uncovered some unbelievable stories and it was all because the, the Hubbard family had made the investment of the time and the careful expertise that it takes to, you know, shine lights on bad businesses or bad people or loopholes in the law, which produce some very uh, foul results. And to be able to make a commitment as a journalist for me to be able to pursue those types of stories at the great expense that is necessary to commit to do. Um, I was just very fortunate. And so that it was in part, I was driving the change of, 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 of gears in my broadcasting career, but it was also that I was given that opportunity to do it on the news side. And, you know, it turns out I enjoyed myself as a reporter doing the investigative stuff as much, if not more than I did in reporting on Olympics world series and the Stanley cup finals. That's crazy. And so I believe it. I, I yeah, I, but I was just I, because again, the common denominator, how exhilarating it is to chase and to get a story and to get it out there first. Yeah, and it's fun. That, that's that's what. Yeah, being first is fun. All right, so how did you trans get get out? Uh, what was the transition out of? KSTP and onto the PR side, and tell tell our audience what what PR means. I know what it means, but from a PR perspective, how did how did that go? Okay, so I'm you know had 24 great years at Hubbard Broadcasting, and uh, things are things are good. And about 15 years ago, um, broadcasting companies across this country were at a crossroads, and it was this little thing called the internet, mm-hmm. and how was the internet going to be embraced by media companies? Where were the profit streams going to come from? Um, what, what did it look like? And at the time that the internet was introduced, there was just a mixed bag of reaction to it. Some embraced it. Some saw it as a threat. Yes. And a lot of, a lot of media companies 15 years ago, Hubbard Broadcasting included, really started to contract on the way that they were staffing their newsrooms and allocating funds. And so they saw the internet as an interruption and a distraction to their business, not as a platform to enhance their profit lines, which they have, you know, which which is what's happening today. And so during this kind of a gray period of how is this all going to work? Um, I was presented uh, a chance to um, discontinue my high-profile role as a senior investigative reporter one day and come back into the KSTP newsroom as a general assignment reporter the next. Right. And so it was, uh, oh, and by the way, we're going to have to restructure your contract because you're going to be doing general news stuff and you're not going to be doing investigative projects. And so the economics uh, made for an easy decision for me to say, you know, I've been doing this a long time and I really have enjoyed everything I've ever done. Um, but I really, I can't afford to do it at a 40% discount. Right. Um, and so 
I said, you know, I'm going to take my experience and expertise, and I want to be able to work with companies and individuals that might not quite understand all the ins and outs of media and how you can get your success stories and how you can work with the press and how your earned media uh, press clippings can mean more than any ad or billboard that you could ever buy. And so I have spent the last 15 years as uh, I opened up my own consulting company and I work on behalf of a lot of different groups and I walk them through the process that the one common denominator is the, when the media, they either want attention from the press or they're trying to minimize their exposure to the press because of a bad employee or a situation that's bubbled up that they want to protect their reputation and not tarnish their brand. And so I do a lot of media coaching and training, and I do a lot of work with different groups about how to best use the press to your advantage, what the media is looking for, and how what you say and your messages, how that matters, and what impact you can make with your brand. And it's so I've been lucky enough that that's what I've been doing now with my own company, Lear Communication. And consultants. It's amazing how uh, important uh, a, your role takes in a specific business, correct? I mean, like a lot of people don't understand it or they don't have the relationships within each of these media outlets. Well, and that's a big part of it. But it's, it's more, you know, to be able to, I, I've, I've had companies call to say, I've had XYZ happen. What do you think? How will the press respond? And I can almost verbatimly predict what those steps look like and yeah. how fast as a company they need to respond and make themselves available because we've all been literally, if there's something that if it's bad news and you don't want to talk about it in Minnesota, you ignore it and just think it's going to go away. And it won't. And well, it doesn't, you know, some instances, if it's a small, small deal, you know, you can weather the storm, but there are so many things that you can, when you take ownership of what happened and you communicate to the press and not that you make it worse, but there's a way to uh, at least show that you want to work with them to get it right because the press doesn't always understand situations because social media has only provided a snapshot of what really happened. And so, uh, no, I've been, I've been blessed to be able to work with groups and get in on the front end and, and do some media training. And I, I now, where I used to take delight in seeing a, a story that I did get on the news or get in the paper, now when I have somebody that I've worked with, when I see a quote, when I see how it's positioned, when I see how um, some bad news stories can have that uh, story minimized, that's now where I get my reward from still being involved in, in what the press is reporting. Well, I get my reward from interviewing guys like you, Rob. This has been a blast, <laughs> well, absolute blast uh, going back to Pershing Park and the field house and hearing about your travels through the Olympic team and the North Stars and the Gophers and all these great people. I've just had a blast. I really appreciate you coming on today's well, show. Well, Tony, I, I, I appreciate it. A lot of this stuff I haven't talked about for a long, long time, so it was like a – uh, a, a trip down memory lane and, and it's all good it's been a great memory lane i'm gonna do a quick uh, sponsor read here really quick and then we'll get you out the door um 
Today's show is brought to you by the Minnesotan. Uh, the Minnesotan uh, positioned and store is in White Bear Lake, Minnesota. Huge shout out to them. They have a great line of hats and vintage apparel, all all directed back to the great state of Minnesota. You can get a sh- get a hat there from the vintage St. Thomas, St. John's uh, schools, the Shop Pond Gang, St. Mary's Ice Arena, Met Center. You name it, you can find it at the Minnesotan. Uh, put a dent in your Christmas list this weekend and take home a free hat, spending $100 or more now through Small Business Saturday, in-store and online at www.theminnesotan.com. No online code required. Thanks for tuning in today's show. Hope you enjoyed it as much as I did.